Our gospel reading this morning is out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 25 verses. Let us hear the gospel. Glory to thee, O Lord. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Please be seated. And if you would, turn to Luke chapter 1, if you haven't already. I'll break my normal protocols. Luke chapter 1, page 855 of your pew Bibles, if you don't have one of your own. Pew Bibles are the little red ones in front of you. I'm all out of sorts. Let me pray that prayer we pray, because otherwise, I don't know where to fit it here, right? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I, uh, I wanted to say something up front before we get into the text. Uh, this past week was Thanksgiving, uh, which 
naturally resulted in no fewer than two food comas on my end. I don't know about you, but in the midst of all that and in the midst of uh, entertaining my, my in-laws and everything else, I, I was very busy Wednesday getting the house ready for company, so I ran out of time to do something else I had been intending to do. I, I kind of wanted to send a, a Thanksgiving email out, uh, just Thanksgiving wishes to the congregation, so I'm going to make it up to you now a little bit with an apology because, well, my wife occasionally punishes my children uh, by making them list out their blessings, uh, all the reasons they should not be moping and whining this morning about whatever it is, and she probably should punish me more often. Uh, last week I confessed from this pulpit that I had experienced much of a sense of disillusionment last week, and I was experiencing a lot of discouragement, and that it, a couple days bordered on cynicism, and that was all true, but I owe it to you as my flock to say that I am thankful for you all, and not to be sappy about it, but not a day goes by that I am not thankful to be living in Allentown and being your pastor, even on hard days. God has been very good to me, and you guys are evidence of that daily. He has used this church to bless me, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I love you, man. Um, on that note, I am thrilled to be entering the Advent season. This is the season of anticipation. Uh, you all know I did not grow up in a liturgical type of church, uh, so there are many things about the church calendar that kind of befuddle me. Um, I have never personally observed Lent. I had no idea that Easter lasted as long as it did, uh, and even the idea of the 12 days of Christmas, to me, I, that was always just an annoying Percy Faith recording we all had to endure on the radio, but <laughs> Advent is one of these things that I do get. Uh, not that I called it that growing up. I generally considered Advent and Christmas to be like one season. It's all the Christmas season, right? Uh, but we did have an Advent wreath in our dining room and even at my church growing up. But even without calling it Advent, the sort of flavor of Advent was always present. And I think everyone feels it at this time of year, uh, even throughout our culture. I think there's a reason why the Christmas music starts as early as it does on the radio, right? People like the festive feelings of Christmas, even if they don't know where it comes from and even though they can't really justify it. Uh, everyone loves the build-up to Christmas morning, right? Christmas is 98% anticipation, right? Uh, Christmas in our culture is one long crescendo to December 25th, and they don't realize it, but they have the church to thank for that. Now, I, I say all this, and I, now I know that none of this uh, means that recognizing a formal Advent season is necessary to our faith. We have some Reformed brothers and sisters who don't recognize Christmas at all. You know, the weirdos, the Scottish, you know, exclusive psalm types, right? Uh, and, and in a sense, resisting Advent is almost a natural feeling because the secular culture has co-opted Advent and kind of ruined it, like they ruin everything else, right? So the Christmas season, as it's typically known, has become a shopping spree, it is a secular holiday that rejects all religious imagery and yet somehow expects to keep the magic and wonder of it all, even without that. They uproot Christmas from its religious Christian context and they think they can keep the excitement while they lose Christ. They don't keep Christ in Christmas, they just want the must part, I guess. It's like a birthday party without the birthday boy. So, in an effort to counteract this trend, we will be doing an Advent series this year. Uh, to learn how to anticipate better, to be biblical anticipators. And to do this, we will be looking at these classic texts in Luke's Gospel. We just finished a rather lengthy series in Acts. 
Maybe some of you began to wonder, like me, is there life after Acts? <laughs> of course there is. This is a life-giving book, amen? All of it, every word. And even Luke has more to tell us, so we don't even have to switch authors, as it turns out. <laughs> We will be spending Advent looking at this prequel to Acts, going back to the very beginning, Luke's record of how all of this stuff started. Before the Holy Spirit came, before all the adventures of Peter and Paul and the others, before Jesus' birth and death and resurrection, all of that stuff, and long before Rome had to take notice of this new religious movement bubbling up down in Judea, before all of that came a birth announcement. Sort of. Uh, Funny enough, it doesn't start with the birth announcement of the Christ child. It actually starts with a preconception announcement for his cousin, born to an otherwise obscure priest and his wife. And first off, Luke does explain why he goes back so far. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the whole book of Luke is dedicated, just like Acts, to this guy, Theophilus, this mysterious patron of Luke. There's not a lot of details we know. People have long debated whether this is a code name. He could be Luke's boss. He could be a Roman equestrian officer, judging by Luke's greeting. We just don't know. It doesn't really matter, because this book was clearly meant to be read well beyond Theophilus. He's not the only audience here. The audience is you and me, right? It's like the dedication on the opening flap of every children's book you've ever read. Luke wrote this with Theophilus in mind, but the intended recipient is all of God's people. It's a story we should all know. And moreover, Luke tells us exactly why we need this backstory and why he starts back so far. He says right there in verse 4, that you may have certainty. See, Theophilus, he's apparently known Luke long enough to be aware of his faith. Maybe he shares it, and he's been taught these things, right? He has seen Christians, he's known them, he's been among them, and he's been in the church uh, interacting with them, and he's seen them in action. And his question is not what the church is like or what it teaches. He wants to know why. We are the way that we are. And my guess is that he's heard a rough outline at this point, of course, of who Jesus is, what he did. But if Luke says he wrote this for the sake of giving Theophilus certainty, that implies that certainty was something that Theophilus perhaps lacked. He understands Christianity in principle. He's just not sure he can swallow it hook, line, and sinker. So Luke goes all the way back to the beginning, to the prehistory of the God-man before he was even conceived, and to set it up properly, he starts with what must have sounded to Theophilus like a complete non-sequitur, an old priest and his wife from 70 years before this fact of his writing. So what does he say in the next section? He says, in the days of Herod, historical setting, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but... They had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So this is the sort of once-upon-a-time paragraph in our, in our story, and it honestly sounds like every other fairy tale you've ever read to some extent. An old miller and his wife lived in a wood, and were very happy, but they had no children. You know, like, they all start this way, right? 
In this case, Zechariah is a low-level priest. Think of him as a, a sort of local pastor and his wife ministering in the waning days of Judah, a nation on the decline, and they have no children. It's just like Rapunzel, Tom Thumb, it's all the same, right? It's a very familiar opening for two reasons. One is that fairy tales are always sort of imitating scripture, and the Brothers Grimm were really not that creative. The other is that this taps a fundamental urge common to all humanity, or at least it used to be, because everyone, I think, wants a legacy. People want to know that their life matters, that all things are not in vain. We all want validation. People look for that validation in their work. They look for it in hobbies. They look for it in philanthropy. We all seek to create things, right? We want to leave a mark. But there's a fundamental urge built into us by God himself to want children, to build something so unique, so beautiful, that no one else could have done it, uh, to participate in God's act of creating a unique soul, someone who bears your image and yet is different from you. It's part of how God designed us. Now, that's kind of a bold statement in today's day and age, because childbearing is no longer really considered much of a virtue in today's day and age. It's no longer promoted by the culture around us. It's actually increasingly frowned on. Uh, environmentalists consider it irresponsible. Feminists consider it degrading. Everyone is afraid of the responsibility and the expense. But it's gotten to the point where only religious families have kids, and lots of them. Uh, there's no more obvious red flag that you might be a religious person than driving a van loaded with kids to your homeschool co-op, right? So I look at this church, and I think, well, we're doing our part to support Social Security down the road, right? We've, we've, we've had plenty of kids in this room. Uh, but the culture around us is not. The birth rate to maintain replacement levels, they say, uh, just to tread water is 2.1 kids, right? On hard days, Georgia says she wishes we could have stopped at 2.1, but... <laughs> The current birth rate in America is 1.7, meaning it's below replacement level. And that's true of almost every Western nation. There's maybe two exceptions. Italy is at 1.2. And in the U.S., that means we are shrinking, or would be if it weren't for immigration. And when asked why they don't plan on children, the largest percentage of childless adults, men and women today, answer simply, I just don't want them. And I would submit to you that this is our culture living in denial of their God-given design and that we are not in a healthy place as a society. Shocking, I know. We, we live in a society that views children as the enemy of fun and freedom and wealth and respectability and sexiness and happiness. They are a hindrance and a burden. I can't have kids. What would happen to my future? Without kids, there is no future. And for all of human history, until very recently, this was universally understood. And yet, in spite of that ingrained desire, it is not God's plan for everyone to have children. We know that. Some people will never marry. Some people will have a hard time conceiving. Some will adopt. Some will spend their whole lives pining for something that God is withholding. And that's very hard. And... The sadness surrounding childlessness is therefore very relatable because if you have no children, you can relate to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and even if you have children, you know what they're missing out on, and that's sad too. 
in, in a normal world, completely foreign to the industrialized West of the 21st century, children were a blessing. And they're a blessing, Zechariah and Elizabeth, in spite of being godly people, righteous people, have not experienced. And left out of this account is how long they have tried. The the years of disappointment, the tears that were shed, the stress and the fights between them over the whole thing, and the eventual resignation to the fact that God must want us to be childless. There There is a whole roller coaster of emotions and backstory concealed in this paragraph because they lived in a sensible time in history where children were regarded as a blessing and now they are old and their greatest desire is now past all reality. They have reached this point in life where you don't keep looking for kids. You you learn to live with the disappointment. You, You keep loving each other. You just keep serving God. So you're just a godly couple living out your lives together. Now Zechariah is also a priest. We're told that he's in... Abijah's division, which is just one of 24 divisions of the priesthood, he goes twice a year to the temple in Jerusalem. And this was the big show. Twice a year, for a week each time, Zechariah went on the same business trip for years and years. Elizabeth wouldn't mind because she's a daughter of the same tribe. Probably the men in her family have done this throughout her lifetime. So the old man packs his bags, he says goodbye, and he makes his usual pilgrimage. But this year would be very different. It says, now... While he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. In fairness, that's a pretty natural reaction. It's a very shocking thing. Uh, Consider that Zechariah is one of many priests in this division who are working in the temple, and only one of them gets to perform this ritual of burning incense to the Lord. So it's a rare honor. Uh, Most priests were lucky to do this even once in their lifetime. Many priests never had the honor. And yet the lot just happens to fall to Zechariah, and he has this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Because the incense was designed to symbolize all the prayers of God's people. It says right in there, everybody's praying outside as he goes in. The the chosen priest brought them these prayers, you know, before the altar of incense, and he does it alone. He is offering the prayers of a nation. That's a lot of prayers and covers a lot of territory. Prayers for every kind of problem, small and large, local, national, international, everything from the Roman occupation to world peace, financial hardships, a recent death in the family, employment needs, Uncle Harry's ingrown toenail, everything's in this bowl. All these petitions reside in the bowl of incense that Zechariah has the honor of carrying to the altar. That's an honor. But it's also a heavy responsibility. And can anyone, I wonder, resist the temptation, at least mentally, to sort of lay your own petition on the top of the pile where God might see it first? I mean, sure, you'll go through the motions uh, for everyone else, uh, but if you're Zechariah, you, you have your own prayers at the front of your mind, right there. 
And it's only natural, I would think, to think that way. One of my favorite Christmas movies is A Christmas Story, which never gets old, which is good because they play it nonstop, right? Uh, but there's a funny scene where, where Ralphie finally gets his meeting with Santa Claus, right? And, and after he's waited in line for hours at Macy's or wherever it is, and he completely blanks when he gets there on what he's here to ask for. So he lets this fraudulent Santa talk him into a nice football uh, before booting him off of the, off the dais, right? And it's only at the last minute that Ralphie stops himself on the slide and he unloads his heart's desire about the Red Rider BB gun, right? With the compass and the stock, etc., etc. And the mall Santa's not very sympathetic in that case. But it's sort of like that. Picture yourself in Zechariah's shoes. You're here at the altar of incense. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You're trying to be respectful and to do your duty, but your biggest temptation would have to be to present your own petition kind of first. It's like having a private audience with the king, and you don't want to blow it by, you know, asking for a football, right? So... I imagine Zechariah throwing his petition on top of the pile mentally, right, along with all the other hardships and trials everyone else is all enduring throughout the entire nation. And here's one last thing for your consideration, Lord. My, my wife and I are hurting, and I don't know what to do for her. And as these thoughts are floating through his head, and, and maybe, you know, he's singularly focused on the altar, he's got blinders on, right, and maybe feeling a little like, I don't know, is it inappropriate that I'm focusing on this? I'm whispering my own prayers. I'm trying not to spill this thing or do anything stupid. And, and suddenly, in your periphery, there's just some dude standing there watching you. <laughs> and that's freaky. There is nothing worse than finding someone's watching you when you thought you were alone with your thoughts. Uh, I've had people occasionally walk in and open the door because I didn't click it in the office and I'm down there like reading my sermon out loud to myself to see if it sounds like it makes any sense you know that's terrible um, uh, and, and when I think of it that way I think it's like it's a marvel he didn't throw the bowl at the guy or something right you know uh, but it's not just the element of surprise I, I think he's actually scared because no priest in his right mind would be in the inner temple right now during a private ceremony let alone standing right there next to the altar, all awkward-like, he probably suspects that this guy is a heavenly being. It tends to be an obvious thing, which means he might also be wondering if he's in trouble for putting his thumb on the scale with his own petition, being selfish in the midst of his duties. So he's scared stiff. But the angel, as always, they're always like this, is eager to calm his fears. It says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." Well, that's a mouthful, and it sure sounds like good news, right? You're going to have a son, and just to make things easy for you, we already picked out a name for him, and, and he's going to be kind of awesome. Not just in that kind of way that every parent thinks their kid is awesome, right? He, he's going to be like legit, like the man, 
He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to be powerful, but also godly. He's going to bring you joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, not just you guys. It's going to be a party. People are going to love this kid. And best of all, he's going to be a blessing to the nation, and people will be more godly for having met him. Could there be a better promise to an aspiring father? I still remember praying over the cribs of my children and asking God to not only protect them, but to use them mightily for his kingdom. If you can imagine an angel popping in to announce that it'll be better than you even hoped, that he's going to be just like all your heroes of the faith, like, this is fantastic. Actually, the promise is too good, and Zechariah can't quite accept it. And Zechariah said to the angel, "'How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years.' And angel, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended... He went to his home. A few things worth noticing here. First off, I want you to notice that even in his unbelief, uh, Zechariah has the wisdom not to call his wife old. <laughs> I'm old and she's, well, mature. <laughs> Advanced even. But in a good way. Smart guy. But notice also how Gabriel answers him. First off, he introduces himself, which in and of itself is kind of a rare, freaky thing, uh, because Gabriel is one of the only angels that is named in Scripture. He's one of the high-ranking angels, and he last appeared in the book of Daniel. So history is standing here in front of Zechariah. And Gabriel's like, dude, I stand face-to-face with God daily. Frankly, this whole temple that you've got here is not really that impressive compared to the real deal. I'm not here to pull your leg, man. I don't mess around, and I don't appreciate the questions. A simple thank you would suffice. Now, Gabriel could just give Zechariah a pinky swear to reassure him in his doubt. Instead, he strikes him deaf, an interesting move. Deafness will be the sign, Zechariah. That's how you shall know that these things will be. Wiggle your way out of that if you can. And then he vanishes. So, as Zechariah, not knowing sign language, finds himself speechless, it's a punishment of sorts, but also a sign that God will deliver on his promise. I think my wife wishes God would send me such signs. Gabriel wouldn't even wait to silence me. I think he'd have to do it preemptively just to get a word in edgewise. But anyway, I noticed that Zechariah doesn't go home right away either. It says he finishes his service and then he goes home. So there's no quitting early because of a medical issue. He does his job in silence. Zechariah does not stop serving God just because God struck him deaf. Moreover, 
Zechariah does his part to bring the prophecy to fulfillment. Verses 24 and 25, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So God removes the reproach. Meaning people have whispered for years that God is sort of judging Zechariah and Elizabeth, but no one's ever going to think that again. I noticed for the first time ever that Elizabeth didn't conceive until after Gabriel appeared to her husband in the temple, meaning that Gabriel was not announcing that Elizabeth was pregnant, but that she would be, which means that Zechariah had a duty to perform at home, too, and he did. And it makes me wonder what surprised Elizabeth more, his new disability or his newfound energy. And maybe she found him more interesting when he was quiet, I don't know. Um, (laughs) Zechariah, the picture we get, is of a man who is committed to his duty. He is steady and reliable regardless of the circumstances. And then Elizabeth goes into hiding, not out of shame, I think, but because some things are just too good to share. It's the same reason that we're told that Mary treasures things in her heart, right? She rejoices best in God's goodness when she is alone with him. And God is close to us when we're alone. He shows up when Zechariah is alone in the temple, and I'm sure he was with Elizabeth in her solitude. And the next time she shows up in public, people's jaws are going to drop. When this old, I mean advanced in years lady, walks out of the house with a baby bump, she will be the talk of the countryside just as Zechariah was the talk of Jerusalem when he came out of the temple as a mute. Now, I love this story, and it's a very familiar story, and if you were raised in the church, it's a very memorable story. But why does Luke start here? He's the only one that goes back this far, and he tells Theophilus that the theme of this book, the purpose of this book, is certainty. Luke wants us to walk away from his entire narrative, Luke through Acts, with certainty about these things. This is the goal of Luke and Acts together. And yet, the story begins in uncertainty. Or or worse, the certainty that God is not really at work in any meaningful way. And what I mean is, one of the things that most struck me this time I read this was not Zechariah's skepticism. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think we would all be a little bit skeptical, but most of us would probably at least keep our mouths shut, you know, we'd smile and nod, but Zechariah opens his mouth and has the audacity to speak and voice his doubts. It's a strange way to claim God's promises for him to be like, hey, God's going to bless you. Yeah, right. It's a weird way to respond to an angel. And again, I don't blame Zechariah for thinking this was too good to be true or that it was a little bit crazy. If anything, I'm just surprised that he found words to say in the situation. He managed to say what most of us would be thinking. But what struck me more is what Gabriel said in verse 13. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, and why? For your prayer has been heard. It wasn't stated explicitly before this point when we're first introduced to him, but now we know what Zechariah's most secret prayer was. He has been praying for a son. 
that somehow against all odds he would experience the joys of fatherhood. And yet he prayed this prayer day after day, year after year, and here he is at the altar of incense laying his heart's desire before the throne and he fully expects God to let him down. Beloved, how many of you know what it's like to pray like that? How many of you offer up prayers without expecting God to answer? Or how many of you focus on praying for small, routine things so that God can't possibly let you down? It's an easy thing to ask for daily bread in America. We we pay our farmers to grow less food. Yet we pray for the things we sort of just kind of expect him to do. And after all these years, I found this passage suddenly very convicting. Last week, I said I hoped at the time that preaching through the book of Acts would produce sort of a new energy and a revival sort of tone in our church, right? I wanted to see the obvious results, more people in the seats, you know. But I spend more time hoping and strategizing and complaining and agonizing and far too little time praying for it. And I had a conversation with Elder Harley on the phone this week that convicted me on the point because I I say I want revival at Lehigh Valley Press. I say I want to see revival in Allentown and I want to be a part of it. But have I been asking? I have had this vision in my head of of Lehigh Valley Press being an anchor of the Reformed faith in this city. I have this vision of Lehigh Valley Press as being essentially the 10th Presbyterian of Allentown, with ministries that reach every demographic, uh, and the gospel reaching new ears weekly, and the kingdom growing. I, I picture us in a bigger building. I picture us with parking and handicap access and room on the lawn for a VBS, room to grow. I have a big vision in my head. And yet I keep so many of my prayers small because I don't often expect answers to the bigger requests. And when I do ask for big things, I do so quietly so as not to be embarrassed in front of everyone when God says no, and I have come to expect God to say no. Or worse, I've come to expect silence. I am a master of praying unexpectedly. And maybe you are too. And I think this passage is here because we can relate to it. I think we all pray like Zechariah sometimes, not expecting an answer. We don't really expect God to do anything. And yet there's good news in here. Whose prayer does God answer? In this passage. Zechariah's. It's Zechariah's prayer that God answers. Is it because Zechariah never doubted? Does he kick Zechariah to the curb and punish him permanently because of his doubts? Does he change his mind or take it back? No. And what that means is that God hears 
unexpectant prayers, and he answers them. His power does not depend on the strength of your faith. And he is not bound because of your lack of conviction. And he doesn't stumble because your prayers are selfish or because you don't expect much. Zechariah lost any confidence that God's going to answer, but to his credit, he kept praying and throwing it before the throne anyway. So in some ways, this whole gospel story begins in a cloud of uncertainty, or as the hymn puts it, long lay the world in sin and error pining. That's where we find it. But as I observed last week in Acts 28, the end of the story is still clouded in some form of uncertainty. Or maybe it's best to say that I didn't have the sense of certainty I wanted to see in that passage because the story ended with Paul preaching the gospel in Rome, but he's still locked up. And the last recorded interaction that we get in the book kind of ended poorly. And in that sense, Luke's story begins and ends in uncertainty. And I concluded that the main thing Paul had going for him was attitude. Because the kingdom of God is characterized by boldness. And Paul is not fueled by results, but by promises. He is energized by faith and by the Holy Spirit who dwells in him. Serving the king is not for wimps and wusses, beloved. We need strength, but we need that strength from outside of ourselves. So Paul served with a boldness that only God himself could provide. Boldness is believing that God will do something when we ask, even if it's not what we expected. Paul was not inherently more bold than Zechariah. He just had the Holy Spirit inside him, and beloved, so do we. First, Paul had to be blinded, and Zechariah needed to be muted. But both Zechariah and Paul lived in an uncertain time. It was a time of anticipation for both of them. The difference was that Zechariah anticipated disappointment, whereas Paul fully expected that God was going to do something big. And the difference is the Holy Spirit. A lot of things happened in between the beginning and the end of Luke's account here. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, Jesus promised to come back. So we too are waiting here in this Advent season. He came once, but he is going to come again, and we look forward to that. But we live in a world that does not anticipate biblically. And sometimes we don't do much better. So my question is what are you anticipating? Do you expect God to show up? Brothers and sisters, if we are going to anticipate biblically, to wait biblically, if we are going to live the spirit of Advent well, if we are going to show the world how to wait, how to do it right, how to love the Lord's appearing, then we need to start expecting God to do something. And even when we don't, to pray anyway and keep serving the king and doing our duty because he doesn't depend on you to make things happen. And that's good news in all seasons. Praise God. Let's pray.
our gracious God and Father. We are in a season of waiting. A season of anticipation, Lord. A season that will let down the world around us because (laughs) what are a pile of presents going to deliver? Lord, we want to learn to anticipate well. We celebrate his first coming, Lord, but we anticipate that second coming. Help us to live like we really believe it's going to happen. Help us to expect you to show up. To pray accordingly, Lord. To ask big asks, big prayers. Knowing that even if you don't answer it the way we're asking you to, Lord, that you will hear them and you will do big things. We pray that you would be glorified, Lord, in us. Be glorified in this church. Use this church to build your kingdom. Lord, do it in this season. Do it in every season. We pray this in Christ's name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.